everyone, welcome to another episode of the Alphabet Cell. My name is Jonathan Chan, and I'm so glad that you can join us today as we continue to explore two segments each week of the Alphabet Psalm, which is Psalm 119. This week, we will be looking at the letters Zayn and Heth. So let's get right to it. I think some of us agree it's sometimes embarrassing to stick out for Jesus. In fact, we get mocked for it. How many of us recently told a coworker that we went to Sunday worship service on Sunday. How many of us were willing to sacrifice a family or friend gathering to attend small group or prayer meeting? How many of us are willing to put a Jesus fish on the back of our cars? Not many, I would guess. Why is that? Well, it is because of the mockery that we receive today. It's also because if we do slip up, we get double portion of the mockery, don't we? Here's a video clip to showcase what I need will be right. I just wanted to give you this letter. I'll leave now. Dear neighbor. <laughs> you are my brother. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> and yet I feel a great sadness <laughs> in my bosom. <laughs> Wait, wait, there's more. I think it's terrible. A man opens his heart and you make fun of him. <laughs> Neighbors forever. Oh, no. <laughs> Dead Flanders. <laughs> what a sap. Read the bosom part again, Dad. <laughs> now, just a minute. Bosom. <laughs> Bart. I wish this family was as close as the Flanders. Okay, okay, all right, all right. She's right. See, I remember one time uh, one of our vendors offered a free all-you-can-eat buffet and all-you-can-drink cruise down to Seattle for a Seattle's Seahawks football game. It was, of course, sponsored by the vendor and also a beer company. So, you guessed it. You know what happens on a cruise ship when it's sponsored by an electronics company and a beer company. However, some of you know that football games, especially the National Football League, when do they usually occur? That's right, Sundays. Well, during that time, I was committed as a Sunday school teacher to teach a bunch of teens. That football cruise was on the same day as when I was teaching Sunday school. And that was the first day of Sunday school. When the email invitation came into my inbox at work, there were two buttons on the screen. Green button saying that I will attend and the red button saying that I will not attend. All around the office, I can hear green buttons being pushed because apparently if you push a green button, it'll go ding, 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 ding. So I've been hearing all these ding, ding sounds all over the office. So. When I was faced with that difficult choice, I was asking myself, should I go to this football game and go on this cruise and tell the church, hey, find another schmo to teach it? Or should I say no and decline the offer? So I, push, I pushed a red button. Unfortunately, my computer was not muted. And if you push the red button on the screen, it would go eh. and hence, 
my the volume of my computer was turned right right up, and everybody in the office heard the. Eh. Oh man, the guys that sat around me heard it and came right over asking, "What are you nuts? Are you crazy? Are you like you're gonna willing, you're willing to sacrifice this once in a lifetime opportunity to go down to the to Seattle and at the all you can eat, all you can drink cruise down to Seattle and watch a football game to teach a bunch of kids Sunday school?" Well, I told them I had to teach Sunday school. And they ask, "Can you not cancel it or find a sub?" They're just teens. Besides, they say, "I bet they're bored anyways." Are you sure? Then quickly, it went from you know caring coworkers to mockery quite quickly as more guys came into the office to see what was the commotion. When everyone heard what I did, they joked and poked fun at my commitment to teaching Sunday school. I felt like a moron. There are other times when friends would wonder aloud as to how is it possible, John, that you're so smart and you're rational. You don't seem to get faced by you know false claims. How could you possibly believe in this book called the Bible? No matter how it's delivered, no matter how it's addressed, mockery still has the same effect on us, doesn't it? That we get mocked for what we believe in. We get mocked for what we stand for, and we get mocked for the actions that we take that we believe are obedience. We get laughed at, or scoffed, or derided for what we believe in and stand for. How are we to deal with this in the most Christ-like way possible? Well, here's where the psalmist begins the next two letters. So let's start. Psalm one nineteen forty-nine to sixty-four, verse forty-nine. Remember your promise to me. It's my only hope. Your promise revives me. It comforts me in all my troubles. The proud hold me in utter contempt, but I do not turn away from your instructions. I meditate on your age-old regulations, O Lord. They comfort me. I become furious with the wicked because they reject your instructions. Your decrees have been the theme of my songs wherever I have lived. I reflect at night on who you are, O Lord. Therefore, I obey your instructions. This is how I spend my life, obeying your commands. Lord, you are mine. I promise to obey your words with all my heart. I want your blessings. Be merciful as you promised. I ponder the direction of my life, and I turn to follow your laws. I will hurry without delay to obey your commands. Evil people try to drag me into sin, but I am firmly anchored to your instructions. I rise at midnight to thank you for your just regulations. I am a friend to anyone who fears you, anyone who obeys your commandments. O Lord, your unfailing love fills the earth. Teach me your decrees. Before I begin, here's my point today that I would like to expand on. When we are mocked because of our faith in Jesus, the psalmist gives us a few things that we can do to keep on soldiering. Six of them, actually. Number one. He says, remind ourselves that God keeps his promises. Number two, remind ourselves that God is consistent and unchangeable. Three, devote time in worship right after the mockery. Four, remind ourselves that God is on our side. Five, take corrective action on how we live. And lastly, be in the fellowship of upright believers. Let's start unpacking Zion and Heth with the, 
with the trouble that the psalmist is facing. What trouble is the psalmist facing? We find that in verse 51. The proud hold me in utter contempt, but I do not turn away from your instructions. Verse 61, evil people try to drag me into sin, but I am firmly anchored to your instructions. So how do we know that the psalmist is being mocked and derided for what he stood for? Well, quickly in verse 51 and 61, we see that those who are proud or think that they are smart or with it or in the know are holding him in contempt. Or in other words, mocking him or deriding him for they reject God's instructions. They think that God's laws and words are a joke and they're deriding and mocking the psalmist for following and believing in them. Some of us may be experiencing this or have experienced this. What does the psalmist recommend us to do? Well, first, in verse 49, the psalmist says, Remember your promise to me. It is my only hope. Your promise revives. It comforts me in all my troubles. Well, the first thing is to find comfort. And he finds comfort in God's promise. Follow God and you will be blessed, i.e. experience a full life and to be in God's presence. Jesus said the same thing in Luke. In Luke chapter 11, verse 28, he says, Blessed! Rather, are those who hear the word of God and obey it. You can say the psalmist has equipped himself for the long game, keeping his eye on the prize as he runs this marathon called life. He knows he's a sojourner from the previous letters and also his mention of wherever I live in verse 54, passing through and that his ultimate home and prize is at the end in God's glory. When he says to God, remember your promise to me, it's not like the psalmist is afraid that God would forget. No, but more of a testimony to God, declaring that God's promise is what's keeping him going and a source of hope in life. God's promise is so important to the psalmist that the expected rhetorical answer from God is, how can I possibly forget? And that's comforting for not only the psalmist, but for us too. When we are mocked for standing firm on our faith and God's commands, we too should faithfully trust that God will never forget his promise for us, that our sojourning troubles will not be wasted. When we say, God, remember your promise, you and I can faithfully and confidently believe that God will respond with an affirmative, of course I will never forget. Let's move on. Verse 52, I meditate on your age-old regulations. O Lord, they comfort me. O Lord, your unfailing love fills the earth. Teach me your decrees. The psalmist then finds comfort in reminding himself that God and his love is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change his mind, nor does he adopt or modify his commandments. He wouldn't say, oh, that commandment, you know, that was just when Mo was in charge. I changed my mind or I made a mistake. Or that word I said, that doesn't apply for today, so don't worry about it. It was only for that guy. No, his commands and words, and he himself remain unchanged, and that's a relief for us. How can we trust someone who keeps changing his mind or breaks his promises or is wishy-washy? How can we trust God if he backtracks or claims that he didn't say it? Just on a side note, though. Yes, we believe that God's commands and words are eternal and do not change. But human nature is fallen 
The way we interpret and apply those commands must be approached with utmost humility. His words are living words, meaning they're relevant and applicable. But we need to have God's Spirit to empower us and enlighten us on how His words can be applicable today. It's when our pride and stubbornness gets in the way to not listen to God's Spirit. That's when we either write off God's commands and say, eh, it's not relevant, or misapply them and place judgment on others. When we do, God's words become a life taker rather than a life giver. The psalmist finds God's unchangeable qualities comforting because he knows that if God can be trusted to free an entire nation from slavery, certainly he can free him from his mockers. How about us? Do you find comfort in knowing that God is unchangeable? That he is the same yesterday, today, and forever? That his promises remain unchanged regardless of the world's circumstances? Or regardless of how many scripts we have encountered or have committed? God's unchangeable qualities gives me comfort knowing that he will do the same for me as he did with, for Jesus, for Paul, for the disciples, and all the Christians who lived before me. That his love is unfailing and will never run out. The psalmist then brings to attention one of the most important responses that we should take when we face mockery. Worship. Twice the psalmist responds to his mockers with praise and worship to God. Here, let's take a look at verse 54. Your decrees have been the theme of my songs wherever I have lived. I reflect at night on who you are, O Lord. Therefore, I obey your instructions. I rise at midnight to thank you for your just regulations. The psalmist knows that this life is temporary and the mockeries he received are temporary. Hence, he said, wherever I live. The psalmist tells us that the first thing to do when mocked by people is not to retaliate, but to worship immediately to God, whether it be with others or even in your own space, by listening to worship songs or hymns, we worship right away. Here's a video clip from Dr. Rob Reimer, a soul care video on the importance you have to start becoming aware. And how do you overcome your fears? I want to look at Philippians chapter 4. Paul has some great advice in here for us. Philippians 4, verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. It's like, he can't say it once, he's got to say it a second time. It's because he threw in the word always. You know, if he just said rejoice in the Lord most of the time, he wouldn't have had to repeat it. But there's the always factor that gets us in trouble. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. By the way, he writes this from prison. So he's not just speaking about something he isn't practicing in deep valleys. Then he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The word here is meekness. It has to do with submission. The Lord is near. He's close. He's present. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's just look at a few steps when you're dealing with fear to overcome. First, it really does begin with praise, worship, rejoicing, always. As a matter of fact, I like to say there's only two times you need to worship God, when you feel like it and when you don't. And the time you need it most is when you don't feel like it. 
when I was having those conversations with Jen, every night I was feeling anxious. And every night, right after the conversation, we were trying to sort through conflict and all my fears getting triggered, I would go upstairs and spend an hour in worship every night because I realized how important this was to access God's presence. Psalm 100 says we enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. We enter into the presence of God through worship. And it also helps me always to remember that God isn't nervous. No matter what's going on in my life, he is not nervous. And so it helps me to get centered. It gets my eyes off of myself and my circumstances and my lack of resources and lifts my eyes to God who has what it takes. And so I always start with worship. Second, when we are mocked, when people spread lies and rumors to attack us because of what we stand for, the psalmist says, worship God, sing praises, meditate on the words, and remind ourselves the decrees, words, commands, and promises of God. He says to even worship at night. In the, like, if it bugs us in the middle of the night and we can't sleep, we wake up at night and start worshiping God. Paul was in prison, heading towards his execution. He was mocked as well, flogged, and the reason why he was in prison was because people spread lies about him. What does Paul do? And what does Paul tell us to do? Rejoice, rejoice always. Worship, always. Personally, this is a challenge for me as well. Like Dr. Rob Reimer said, there are two times we worship, when we want to and when we don't. And many times when I'm mocked by others, I would rather go on a defense mode or an attack mode and lash out as opposed to worship. I would be dwelling in my anger and frustration and fear rather than worship. I too need to challenge myself to stop and worship in my space right away. Tune out the mockeries and tune in to the truth of God. I find that maybe sometimes uh, on a side note, when we drive or when we feel tense and anxiety and it catches on and we encounter road rage, I think maybe it's good to turn on some worship music in our cars. There, there in worship, in that space of worship, I will find comfort and rest and realign myself in God's promises. Next, verse 57, Lord, you are mine. I promise to obey your words. God is on our side. Paul says it so well in Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to 34. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. When we face mockery, we remind ourselves that God is fighting for us. He's on our side. We belong to him and he belongs to us. The very creator of the world where the entire cosmos and nature obeys him is on our side. The one who resurrected Jesus from the dead, healed the sick, and defeated legions and armies of demons is on our side. Wow, no wonder the psalmist says, you are mine, and reaffirms his promise to God's word. Why wouldn't he? God is so awesome. He's on our side. Next, verse 59. I pondered the direction of my life, and I turned to follow your laws. The psalmist is also realistic, though. 
not everything is blamed on the mocker. Some, some of the blame goes upon us as well. We can be the cause of the mockery. The psalmist knows that sometimes mockery is actually provoked because his actions and slip-ups caused it. Today, I don't know about you, but as I watch the news of self-proclaimed evangelical Christians protesting and defying health guidelines in light of COVID-19, I also see the media mocking Christians in general, lumping all of them together because of their defiance. When I watch Christians say COVID-19 is a hoax or that masks kill them, that they should have the right to physically congregate, that Jesus matters more than Black Lives Matter, that God gave them the freedom to not wear masks or the freedom to breathe, I see people like CNN, like CNBC, or even like News 1130 and CBC mock Christians for being stupid, naive, and hypocritical, hypocritical since they're endangering their neighbors. These are extreme examples. But the psalmist wants to bring to the point that some of the mockery that we receive may be provoked because of our own actions and decisions. Hence, the psalmist knew that too. He too found out that some of the mockery that he received was indeed provoked, and he in turn had to turn from his ways, ponder first about the direction that he's going, and turn to follow God's law again. Turn to follow God's direction. I.e., he repented of his actions that provoked the mockery, and changed course back to God. And the one who he said, I pondered the direction of my life. He reflected upon what he has done to deserve that mockery, and he repented and turned back to God. That takes a lot of humility, folks, because every time we get mocked, we would go on a defense mode. I would lash out, try to defend. But here the psalmist says, first worship, then repent. Worship, repent, and go back to God. Verse 63, I am a friend to anyone who fears you, anyone who obeys your commandments. Writing this sermon during COVID-19 and saying that fellowship with believers is so important to find strength and encouragement, it's quite tough, isn't it? Because due to social distancing restrictions and taking precautions and not infecting anyone so we don't meet face-to-face, -face, it's quite limiting to the, of the whole fellowshipping thing. Yet we can't stop meeting together, and hence, Crucible Church meets over on Zoom every week, doing live worship and connection, and making intentional time to do these breakout rooms so that we can share and connect and pray for one another. We cannot stop meeting together. we got to find ways, whether it's virtually or in a small, safe, open gathering, to seek each other out and fellowship together. None of us can sojourn alone, not even the psalmist here. Remember, if this was written by David, David really knew the value of having God-fearing friends around him. The dude really screwed up a lot, and the dude also received a lot of mockery. And so the only way that he could have pulled through out of those ruts is to have friends, godly friends, to be by his side. So to conclude, as Christ followers, we are all sojourners. Just like I mentioned in the last sermon, Jesus didn't promise a life of sunshine and rainbows. No, he promised that we will experience what he experienced. Yet he also promised that we will soon see him in God's kingdom. Jesus was mocked. Paul was mocked. The disciples were mocked. Every God-fearing Christian in all of history was mocked at least once in their lifetime. Yet praise God. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
His promises remain the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he will bless those and dwell with them as I close with these words in 1 Peter. 1 Peter says this, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make your partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. So be happy when you are insulted for being a Christian, for then the glorious Spirit of God rests upon you. If you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs, i.e. not provoked. But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. For the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news? And also, if the righteous are barely saved, what will happen to godless sinners? So if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. Amen. Thank you.